Welcome to Women Wanting Women, where we explore topics that matter to women like us. We talk about being a woman, attracting women, and becoming more powerful women by developing more self-confidence and always reaching for the next level in our self-actualization. I'm your hostess, lesbian love coach, Jordana Michelle. And if you're interested in finally finding the woman of your dreams, so you could be best friends who learn and grow together and share your dreams together and have adventures together and share passion and intimacy together, then also check out my website, womenwantingwomen.com, because it's packed with resources that can help you, including my guide to quickly and easily eliminating rejection from your life, a how-to guide for finding your lesbian soulmate, a quiz to find out what qualities the woman of your dreams will find most attractive about you when you meet her, a report that explains the three biggest mistakes most women make when coming out and how to avoid them, and a matchmaking survey you can fill out in case I already know the woman of your dreams. All of that is free on womenwantingwomen.com. But before we go any further, I have a question. Did you know that I had an eating disorder in high school and college? Well, it turns out that it's not uncommon for closeted women to suffer from eating disorders before coming out. And during this interview, I learned that maybe one of the reasons I had my eating disorder was because I was suppressing my sexuality, which is something I don't think I even considered before this conversation. But obviously, I'm not an expert on eating disorders. I talk a lot about my own experience in this episode, but even when I sound strong-minded and sure about things, Everything I say here is just my own personal opinion about what I think worked for me. But nothing I say during this interview should be taken as advice because outside of my own experience, I don't know anything about treating or healing eating disorders. But Dr. Cheryl Kornfeld is a clinical psychologist based in Denver, Colorado, who specializes in eating disorders, and she's also a lesbian and she's also my cousin. So I invited her on the podcast to talk about what she's learned over the past eight years working with women, and specifically queer women, who have eating disorders. We also talk about coming out and early experiences hooking up with girls and how she met her wife, and she's great to talk to, so despite the heavy subject matter, this one is still a fun episode. So I hope you enjoy my deep conversation with Dr. Cheryl Kornfeld. All right, my first time having an actual family member on the podcast. Welcome, my cousin Cheryl. Hello. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Of course. Thank you for asking me to be on it. Oh, interesting tidbit about Cheryl. For anyone who's ever been scared of dating someone and being there first, mm. when um, that person comes out feeling like, you know, you don't want to be someone's first because they might, you know, they'll eventually want to whatever date around, um, Cheryl can speak to that. Yeah. It's so funny that you said that. Yeah. Uh, being married to someone who I'm the first and only woman that they've been with was a li- at first, you know, having that conversation of, is this, do you need to date around? Do you need to hook up with other girls? I don't know. Um, but I think I've been with other people where I've been there first and it was totally different. And I think it really depends and you can kind of get a feeling and hopefully trust your gut at the beginning. Cause when I've been with people in the past, it's been like, I'm not going to tell anybody at first or like, I don't know, or I'm not sure. And so then there's those fears. Um, and then like being with my, my now wife, she told 
her work. She told her family, all the people within the first little bit and just really felt comfortable and kind of having that conversation of, I don't think I need to be with anybody else. Like, I'm very happy with us and what we're doing and how we are. So I think, yeah, I haven't thought about that in a while, but it's very true. Well, I remember, I think I was there the next day because you were staying at your sister's. And so I was over there and yeah. you had met her. You had, I, I think you, well, they were, you guys were, it was, you were both in the same sorority at college. Is that correct? Different sororities, but we met during rush. She's a year younger. So we, but we had met in college when I was a sophomore and she was a freshman. Literally we reconnected is what we like to say, uh, seven years to the day after we met. Oh, that's crazy. And how funny though, let's also review, which I feel like we haven't discussed that you met her at Rush, which to me, which I found so funny about Rush was there was something with all these girls just having crushes on each other and wanting each other in each other's houses. For anyone who's ever been through sorority Rush at college, it's very, it's a little bit homo, I think it's quite homoerotic. Wouldn't you say like in a girl, everyone's having girl crushes on each other. Oh my God, yeah. We literally, we call it Rush Crush. Like when you have a Rush Crush on someone and I had a few of them. It defined what that means for anyone who hasn't been through this. So a Rush Crush has to do with rushing a sorority. So what you need to understand about that is that in the Greek system, for any girl that wants to enter a sorority, what they do first is you go in these groups, these organized groups, and you walk through all the different sorority houses. Now, the people who are, the women, the girls who are already in sororities, they want the best new girls to be recruited into their house. So it's the rule of the pre-existing girls in the houses to recruit and get younger girls to join their house. So it's sort of like a dating situation between the younger girls that want to join houses and the older girls that are already in houses. Am I on the right track? Yeah, definitely. It does feel like speed dating. It's like speed dating for freshman college girls with all the older girls in the school. And so what happens is because these older girls also want to recruit who they think are the coolest, cutest, younger girls, they, the, and the younger girls want to be recruited by the houses that they think have the you know, cutest, coolest older girls, there's this, this, it's really almost like dating. And what happens is these, when people get excited about each other, the, these older girls and the younger girls getting excited about each other, that's when you call a, what, that's what we call a rush crush. Yes. And right. I had a few of those and <laughs> my wife being one of them. Here we are. Colby was your rush crush? Yeah, one of one of them for sure. Oh, that's too much. Um, and then we would like seek each other out when we were out during college and stuff, just as friends. We laugh about it now though, because she said she if I would have tried to kiss her at some point in college, she probably would have kissed me. Damn. I know. But timing is everything. It was perfect. It worked out just perfect. For sure. Oh. That's so yeah. cute. Cheryl's wedding was my parents first lesbian wedding. Thank you for that. You're welcome. <laughs> it was gorgeous. So another reason why it, we could have so much to talk about here is because of the work that you've been doing over the years around eating disorders. And um, hold on, your degree is what? You have a PsyD? I'm sorry, I'm like yes, not. Uh, yeah, so you studied psychology and then sort of became an expert in women with eating disorders. Is that a thing? Is that correct? 
Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been in the world. I worked solely with women for a while and now where I'm working, it's men and women. Um, but most, I mean, we see a lot of women, but yeah, I've been doing it for like since being in grad school. So probably seven or eight years now solely in pretty, or pretty much solely in the eating disorder world. And that overlaps a lot with, uh, the queer world you were telling me, isn't that correct? Yeah, it really does. There's so much going on because an eating disorder is a really big part of it is attempting to disconnect from your body. And so there's a huge disconnect there. And a lot of people who have either not come out yet or are struggling or with their, whether it's with, you know, same sex attraction or gender identity or who, I don't know, a bunch of different things in that sense want to disconnect from their body because it's let them down or they're scared to connect to it and enjoy sex with a woman or whatever it is. But, um, I see it a lot as somebody's recovering from an eating disorder or they're in that kind of in the setting where they're working on it. Um, either they come out while they're there or later or just some part of it where they either weren't they had no clue maybe, or they did know, but they were really suppressing it. What, who knows? But it's such, it's so interesting, the connection that I see in this, in eating disorder treatment between, like I said, sexuality, gender identity, and their eating disorder. I did have an eating disorder in high school um, and into college even. I think it was two things. I sort of, I, I don't really know what to call it. I definitely never like purged or anything like that. I never did any throwing up or anything, but um, I would either eat almost nothing and I would exercise like crazy. And I had a very dysfunctional relationship with food for a while. I, you know, I don't think necessarily mine was related to my sexuality, but I, 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 yeah, I mean, it could have been, it could be, I think we see it so often. I mean, it could relate to so much and this could be a part of it or a maintaining factor of just or not trusting your body or being unsure or we see people missing out. And that's another piece of it in the, in, you know, people with eating disorders, they're missing out on life because they're isolative or they're, you know, so focused on the number on the scale or that they can't look up and focus on the people around them. And sometimes that's actually a really good, I say good with air quotes around it, distraction in a way. If you're so focused on what you're eating, you're so focused on your body, you're so focused on the number. It's like, your mind can't, or you, you're not allowing your mind to be focused on the real issues in your life or who you're attracted to or what's gone on in your life, your relationship with others or things like that, or your fears and anxieties. So I think there's such a huge, like wide range of maintaining factors is what we'd call it for an eating disorder. I mean, I definitely do remember that back in the day, food would just be, it would block me socially from having as much fun, Mm -hmm. from thinking about other things. Yeah. It was really uncomfortable. It was a terrible time in my life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, and it probably like helped you in some way, whatever that is in that time, you know, like it's a, like I talk about how much it takes away from you. And it also, you know, you have to honor that it functioned for you in some way, you know, it did something and helped you get through a rough time in some way because it gave you control or it gave you something to focus on or whatever it is when in a world that's so out of control and unpredictable or whatever's happening for, you know, that person in that. Well, what happened, I think, was in high school, I had I ate almost as little as possible around mm-hmm. my junior year. And then mm-hmm. my senior year, I started to lose 
like grip on it a little bit. And then when I went to college, I ate like everything. I ate so much in college and gained a whole lot of weight. But I do remember a time in college looking back and thinking to myself, will I ever, (laughs) will I ever not be obsessed with food? Like, will I ever not? It was really consuming. And that was the answer. Fortunately for me was, yeah, it'll be fine. But was it sucked. I think that can be the answer. I mean, that's so hard to look in the future when you're so in, like entrenched in it too. And it feels so hard or far away to get to a point where you're at now. And it's like, there's no way I'm ever going to get to that point. Like, are you kidding me? It's going to, this is going to be my focus. It's going to be all I think about. And it can happen. Like you said, I mean, it, it, it's kind of one step at a time One, you know, things like that. Yeah, I, I can. There's definitely healing that can be had from it. It's so so, it's so funny. It's so not something I think that much about because I'm really sort of out of it. Um, but I do think it's really interesting about that whole disconnection from the body that mm-hmm. that lesbians. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different pieces to this. I mean, we see a lot of people who have experienced trauma. We see a lot of people who feel like they, you know, like I said, the sexual attraction piece or like disconnecting from their body for whatever reason it is. And, um, eating disorders when you're malnourished or when you're overeating or when you're purging or exercising or laxatives, whatever it is, it's such a distraction, like I said, and it really deprives your body from what it needs. And then when you can't, you don't, it numbs you out and it numbs your body out. It stops you from feeling attraction a lot of times having some sort of like um yeah sexual attraction to people it it allows you to feel um depending on whatever that person's story is like um protected from like I said if there's a trauma like from being touched or if there's you know or like the attraction is scary or you're subconsciously or consciously trying to inhibit it like feel protected from other people being attracted to you. Um, and I think that disconnect, it, it really does in your brain and in your body turn something off because all of your resources are being used to keep you alive in a lot of ways. And again, your brain is distracted. So people who tend to you know, restrict a lot or starve themselves in a way, um, their brain actually starts to focus so much on food because that's all you can think about because your body needs it and your body finds a way to, you know, think about what it needs because it's trying to tell you something. Um, so I think again, when you're so distracted, you're consciously or subconsciously distracted by food, by throwing up, by whatever it is, it really, um, it it just numbs you out to all of it. And also again, this identity piece I think is big. Um, I see a lot of people who are like the eating disorder is my identity or I don't know who I am without it. I don't know who I am. I don't know who I am. All of that over and over. And, um, I think a lot of it, some, or not a lot, but a lot, some of it can be, again, I keep using the word distraction and I don't mean it in a bad way necessarily, but just like a distraction from figuring out this part of yourself. But I think it's really interesting, the idea of the distraction, how it can actually be useful, because if there is sexual trauma that mm-hmm. someone wants to disconnect from, um, if they feel that they don't want to be someone who sexually attracts others because of trauma that happened, yeah, um, or you know, just needing to disconnect from their body as a, a coping mechanism, then I can see why that yeah. sort of numbing out is an effective strategy. Yeah. So sad. But it's so sad, unfortunately, and, um, 
in treatment and I work in high levels of care. So I work in inpatient setting. I've worked in residential day treatment, things like that. It's like to be able to work through it. You actually, like when you numb out in that way and distract yourself in that way, your body again, stops having that attraction and people you're not engaging in that. And it actually stops you people who dissociate or people who, um, have flashbacks or intrusive thoughts, uh, nightmares, memories, all of these things. It helps with that when you are not eating because your body can't, can't do that. All of its resources are being used to keep it alive. And as someone starts eating or stops throwing up or stops exercising or stops cutting themselves, whatever it is, um, the dissociations or the flashbacks and memories, all of this tends to come really strong. And so again, back to what I said, like how the eating disorder maybe functioned for you or it's protected you in some way, it really does protect and help someone, you know, from disconnecting from all of that. It's so sad. And I think if the more I look back, I think it was just competition. I think girls were just trying to see who could be the skinniest. We just needed, wanted to be skinny. I think it was just straight competition. I mean, that can definitely be part of it. And then some people can diet for a little bit and then be totally fine, you know, and they come and they swing back from that. And some people like, depending on your temperament and your genetics and what's going on in your life, um, can go down the path of an eating disorder. And, you know, we were pretty competitive about being skinny and um, trying to be really skinny. Plus, it was a really competitive time in terms of getting good grades, and it was around SAT. It was exactly the year that I was taking my SAT, SATs. So I think there was just competition on every level, and I was so focused on studying and working hard, and also on being skinny. And it was all sort of tied in with the package of just yeah. that whole competition thing. It was kind of yeah. an intense time. Like and then what happened? And then the reason I went swung in the other direction in college because now you're like, fuck it, I'm in college, you know, like just went in the mm-hmm. other direction. I'll eat everything and I'll be lazy. Um, not that you know, don't try this at home. No, I think <laughs> but, also, I think also in high school, it's like around that time, like again, SATs, all of that. Like you're so out of, you're so focused. There's people who have more anxious temperaments or perfectionists, all of that. Like they're needing to they're needing to accomplish things. They're needing to be on top. Like you said, that competition piece. And it's like, who can be the best? I need this. I'm out. I need to be in control of every part of my life right now. Or, oh gosh, my SATs are not going to be as good as this person, but at least I can be skinnier than she can kind of thing. And that competition piece can be really strong. And again, like really trigger and like kind of stir up that piece in different people. And then what's really funny is my first year of law school, I was back in New York feeling good. I lost all this weight, just actually really feeling good. And the reason that I did so well my first year of law school is because I just found it to be super fascinating. So it was sort of everything came full circle, coming back, like learning for the right reasons, feeling good in my body, and then being able to, again, of course, focus more. So then there you go. Exactly what you're talking about. I had my brain back. Yeah. And like you said, like you were so enthralled with it, like finding passion. And a lot of times like you have to seek that out or find it. And a lot of times people are like, well, I don't have a purpose or I don't have passion. And I'm like, you have to create that for yourself or go out and find it. It just doesn't like always come to you. 
Um, you have to work hard to figure out all of those pieces. And I like think for law school, for you, like you said, you were so excited or passionate. First year, first year, let's first not get year, carried away here. There's nothing, yeah, yeah, there's no one who could argue that, you know, being a lawyer is my passion, but that first year True. of law school is really fascinating. Right. It's just really there interesting stuff year. where you like learn about how the law works <laughs> and you learn about what it's like. It's just changes your whole way of thinking. You learn this whole new system and it's it's really interesting that first that first year the next two years what you know and then being a lawyer different story but very different I I appreciate that distinction I think even what you just said like learning a new skill so learning about all of this stuff is such a good tool in terms of helping someone through an eating disorder when you're you don't have anything else to do. So you either eat, exercise, throw up, don't eat, whatever it is to distract yourself, but actually learning a new skill or learning about the law, learning something new in your life is it takes up more space and then you get excited about it. And when you have something you're excited about, you don't need to feel that other piece of control all the time. You know, you don't need to, you actually feel in control more of your life. Sure. That's so interesting. You're saying that, that a tool for healing from, an eating disorder or any physical trauma involved uh, could be learning a new skill or, or doing some sort of learning. Is that one of yeah. the tools that you guys recommend? Yeah. Something sensory usually, but any, like it could be anything. Um, so you mean like, like what, like a karate, karate sort of thing? Like when you say per, or, uh, learning guitar, I mean, for anxiety in general, like it's really hard to focus on your anxiety and learn guitar. You know, how do you do both? Or we, a lot of people do calligraphy or they're crocheting or learning a new language. Even how do you focus on your anxiety and learn a new language? How do you think about how do you focus on your body and learn whatever it is? So, and again, finding something you're passionate about. So even if we're talking about relationships or like being attracted to women or whatever it is, it's something you're passionate about takes up space in your brain and it takes up space that the eating disorder or whatever the the other mental health thing would take up usually. So you kind of have to put it out of a job if it's trying to take up brain power. Should we get into body image? Sure. So, I mean, I think the body image piece is really big. If we think about body image, we're humans in society. It's around us, like the the pressure, whatever it is to look a certain way, man or woman, anybody is, has this pressure around them. And um, I think in terms of an eating disorder, like, that can play a huge part. And what I was saying before, when your brain is so focused on your body, it's really hard to be in relationships with others because all you're doing is focused on being focused on your body, what you can do to change it, what it looks like, um, not putting yourself in possible situations where you're going to meet new people because you're scared, not feeling good, not feeling confident um, in yourself. And a lot of times people want to wait till they feel confident to do the things that um, would help them to feel more confident. So it's kind of like this I don't even, I don't like fake it till you make it either. Like, I don't know, something about that doesn't feel good. It just, sometimes you have to do the thing that you're scared of to help yourself feel more confident. So if we're talking about body image, putting yourself in a situation, sorry, my dog started, you know, playing with her toy again, putting yourself in a situation that might be really scary, but the avoidance of that situation is just perpetuating your fears and your negative body image and, the eating disorder then gets to creep in and have you do things to your body to make it look a certain way, but that are unhealthy for you and will create issues in your life or 
Yeah. And, and then it's like kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in some ways, cause you're avoiding and escaping situations that could help you feel better. So you feel worse. So you don't want to go to those situations or like go into those situations and it just kind of sucks. I just feel like it's really hard for somebody. And of course, everybody's going to be thinking about their body and focused on it in some way. But to what extent? And the more you can create a life for yourself outside of that, the less you will feel the need to be focused on it. And also, it's about looking at what it means about you. So, you know, I'm a psychologist. So I'm always like, you know, someone I'm like, I'm really scared I'm going to gain weight. Well, what would that mean about you? That I'll be fat. Well, what would that mean about you? And there's the nobody will love me or that I'm out of control or, you know, I won't have, nobody will like me. People will make fun of me and you kind of get to the underlying root and it's not really about the body. It's more about the underlying fears and insecurities in their life. And the body is just the vessel that they're focused on to give some sort of focus to something because otherwise it's about them, not about the body, which is changeable. But people think that themselves aren't changeable. Unsure if that was good grammar, but you know. <laughs> no, it makes it a lot of sense. Not loving their body somehow being correlated with not loving themselves or feeling that they themselves aren't lovable. Yeah, or they're a failure or they're out of control. And, you know, I think in a world that's so unpredictable and uncontrollable in some ways, you feel like you have to be in control of something and body is the thing that's around you all the time, right? So focus on that. And then, you know, the problem is, is that, that kind of wherever you go, there you are, you could lose as much weight as you want, or you could gain as much weight as you don't, whatever it is, like, you're still gonna have that those fears and insecurities. The one of the one of the craziest things I ever remember learning in my life was in this, the first book I ever read by Pema Chodron or Pema Chodron, I don't know, I never really know how to pronounce her name in the book, When Things Fall Apart. And one of the things that she said that I, or I remember learning there and it totally blew my mind. The thing that she taught was that there is never going to be predictability. There's never going to be ground under your feet. Like we're in this totally unpredictable, unstable reality. And that's just what it is. Mm -hmm. And so if you can get comfortable in that constant state of instability and like feel where, how it feels and get into the feeling of it and just learn how to relax there. Mm -hmm. Um, and I remember just it blowing my mind that, oh my God, it's never going to be comfortable. So you have to learn how to be uncomfortable with the discomfort. Totally. That's like exactly what I'm saying. I say a lot. And I mean, you think about people who go through trauma when they're young, it's really hard to come, not come back from that, but be able to be comfortable in the discomfort in a way, because it's from a young age before they can learn that for themselves, their world view is shattered in a way. Oh no, absolutely. I, I honestly, that's so far out of, yeah, I'm really lucky that when I say that I'm saying it from, mm -hmm. from my own very privileged background, cause holy cow. No, but it's, it's true. And it's a, something that everybody in a way has to learn or be comfortable with if they're going to, you know, like in this world, because yeah, the world is, who knows what's going to happen. <laughs> right. Well, that's, that's what it means to be alive is that it's just yeah. anything can happen. Yeah. So Pema Chodron, there you go. So <laughs> what about mental health in all of this? You know, I think also the eating disorder piece is like a vessel in a way. It's one of the outlets in a sense for anxiety, depression, trauma, something like that. I've never really 
um, honestly, seen someone with just a diagnosis of an eating disorder. There's, I would say, 95 to 98% of the time, an underlying anxiety, which includes OCD or trauma or depression or all of the above, um, or, you know, I say depression, but I mean mood disorder could be bipolar, could be anything, um, underlying it. So, you know, some people turn to something, you know, alcohol, substances, whatever it is to control in that way. Um, and some people turn to eating disorders. So I think everything we've been talking about in a sense is based on, can be based on an underlying, you know, mental health, you know, issue of some sort. And I think, um, unfortunately there's been, there's stigma around that. So people don't get or haven't gotten the help that they need. Um, whether that's universal stigma or like insurance companies or whatever it is around mental health. So I think anxiety, depression, by any sort of mood disorder, OCD, all of that trauma kind of goes into what we've been talking about in a lot of ways. Absolutely. And then I'm just going to say, because I'm not thrilled with the food industry in our country and the way that people are being poisoned, but I think that when you get up every day and if you just follow what's normal and you eat what's normal in our country, mm -hmm. and because you're just doing what's normal and what's normal is so unbelievably unhealthy, and then instead of being able to, to stay fit, you know, our bodies automatically are going to respond to that by gaining weight without necessarily our ability to control it that is that would give that gives us anxiety in a world we're expected to look differently um and i think it's so unfair that we have this unhealthy diet that we're being fed yeah i mean i i think i have like varying views on that because i i'm again like balance in a way i think is so important and i think there's a huge truth to what you're saying in so many ways because i think you're this country obviously there's a lot of issues in the food industry and what's going on and i think like people aren't like there's so many even family pieces to it of like some people grow up with like you must clean your plate some people grow up with don't eat anything that's what you know processed in any sort of way some people you know I think these extremes are what can be most harmful versus like hey why don't you listen to your body and give it what it needs and be able to like really just like listen and when you're full that's cool and when you're when if you're still if you find out what your hunger cues are do you get a little angry do you get a little bit you know like a pinch in your stomach that you're like ooh something's going on what is it that happens to you when you get hungry and allow yourself to eat and like again a big a big thing is balance and i think we have these extremes and could go into socioeconomic status issue, you know, issues around that and how much these foods cost that aren't, you know, what foods cost and where and fast food and all of that. And I think it kind of, like you said, it kind of sucks in this country in a lot of ways, but I think the biggest piece in is this country. And that's really, I think the issue, because if, um, what I learned from Michael Pollan and the, the first book, I, well, I've read a few books before that by him, but in the in his book that kind of made him famous, The Omnivore's Dilemma, what he talks about is how America has a national eating disorder because if you look at all these other countries, like from, you know, Americans, we come from many, many different ethnicities. And if you eat mm. ethnic food and you eat the way that from any eth ethnic region, um, eating what they eat the way that they eat it would actually be quite healthy. 
to mm. eat from a certain ethnicity. And, and, you know, if you're going to whatever far reaches of the world, it's not actually expensive. It's in, it, it's, um, it sort of goes in line with their climate and what's available there. And they found a way over many, many, many thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years of adapting to that land to get the most nutritious possible food for what is available in that region. And that's how regional, um, ethnic food, you know, from, from people who live in mm. those places of the world, those diets were developed, you know, just over basically evolution. They're very, mm. they're quite healthy for the human body. That's the theory. But when then we come to America and there is no one ethnicity, we all sort of just have a conglomerate and also with the food industry distorting the flavor with, um, you know, and, and, and creating processed food that's made just to make us want to eat as much of it as possible. And also with this, without any one ethnicity that is sort of guiding our food choices, we're in this mishmash and food is less and less nutritious the more processed it is. And so we're put, and then there's all this food advertising um, and a lot of confusion around what is and isn't healthy because especially because of the food pyramid being created in a way that didn't serve us at all. And so we have this national eating disorder, as he calls it, and including, um, you know, farm subsidies that are promoting the growing of corn, which then turns into corn syrup, which is this, you know, high fructose corn syrup being this highly addictive, like overly sweet thing that's messing with people's senses and ability to control their hunger. And so I think that also contributes massively to the anxiety around food because no one knows how to eat in a way that's not going to, I mean, if you follow what the commercials say or what's normal, there's no way to have any control over your body in that situation, I think. Or that was my experience. Um, am I doing the opposite? Am I causing eating disorders by having this conversation? Well, I just, I mean, I think it really depends on the, on the person and the individual. And I think, again, like my big thing is, I, I really think the extremes are what's the issue. Like if you want to, I'm under the, the guys, I guess, like it's about balance and it's about being able, you know, maybe you do eat something that has what that's processed and high fructose, whatever. doesn't mean you're eating it all the time. Totally. I have ice cream. Yeah. You know, and I think that's the point is like, how much are we like, I think there needs to be some sort of focus, but there also needs to not be in a way, you know, and like not make it such a thing where you have to eat a certain way or you don't, you can't eat a certain way. And then also I find like doctors then are so focused just on someone's weight and number and not on like the underlying issues. And are they eating more than they need to be eating? Are they eating less than they need to be eating? Do they have depression, anxiety? Are they unable to afford foods that could be better for them. Are they what, you know, whatever it is in society. And again, you know, I think I can understand. And I think there's such an issue again in our country or in the, you know, around food in general. And, um, I think any extreme kind of sucks to me for lack of a better term, because it doesn't allow somebody to, enjoy food in any way sometimes like there's people who just eat crap that they don't enjoy and they're so focused on that and again it takes away from like don't you want to just go out to dinner and be able to have a meal with friends sometimes because that's like we are we crave connection versus I can't go out to dinner I can't do this because I'm home and I have to eat this and I can't eat out because I don't know what's in it and I don't know this and that and that no, but if you do and, understand good food rules, you can eat out and you can eat anything you want as long as it's 
you know, I mean, I don't have to hold, I, I don't have to have any balance, but I have learned to eat in a way without having to ever stay home, without having to ever worry, where I can enjoy high fructose corn syrup, ice cream anytime I feel like it, but it's not something I would do all the time because I'm, comf- you know, I eat a balanced, like I really know how to balance my diet. And then therefore I could feel good without having to worry about it. And I think the problem is we don't educate people how to do that. Yeah. And that's what's scary. And I think the way it's done, people aren't, if they're not educated, then again, like it's, I'll go back to before people's temperament, genetics, you know, um, life experiences, things like that can kind of, uh, really make someone susceptible to having an eating disorder. And if they're not educated in a way, and if they're not educated on the mental health piece, like they, when I'm talking about temperament, I mean, people that tend to have more of an anxious temperament or they tend to be more perfectionistic or they tend to be, you know, like more harm avoidant, things like that. You give them this information in one way and it could really spiral downward fast. But if you give them the information with a, um, in a really healthy, and I don't necessarily have all the answers to that, but like, I think it just has to be done in a way that's well thought out and, um, taking into account people, different people might, it might affect different people differently. (laughs) Right. And I don't even mean take adults because we're, a lot of us are screwed, but you know, like gardening (laughs) with kids and chopping up vegetables and showing them how to prepare really healthy, yummy things that are easy to make if you know how, and like teaching kids how great food can be when it's healthy and you know, that kind of thing for with little kids, not in a place where we're going to like mess people up and give them more reasons to be anxious. (laughs) Right. We don't need that. We don't need that at all. Yeah. I think labeling like foods in general can be hard. I mean, like, you know, there's like, what's the definition of healthy in a way versus or like good and bad foods kind of thing can be really difficult because then you tie a judgment to it versus like you like what's that well balanced or what's like this, like you said, chopping vegetables and how this can really help Again, I'm not a dietitian, but giving some information about what it does for you versus saying this is a good food and this is a bad food because then, you know, right. The kids- if you just kind of think of it as nutrient density, so there's the more, yeah. which is totally what I really mean. So I should have said these yeah. are nutrient dense things that are super yummy. This is really good for your brain. This is really good to help you concentrate. Like, and this is really good because you know what? We want it right now and that's okay. You know, it's not like, Ooh, I, like, I'm being really bad right now, or I'm being really good right now. It's kind of just like, this is what my body wants right now. And this is what's good for it in a way, not good or bad, like in a judgment way, but like, this is what's going to help my brain to focus better. This is what's going to help my kidneys, I don't know, like whatever it is, but kind of giving it a purpose, but also enjoyment is a purpose of food as well, or can be. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think, again, it's kind of like the way you do it. And I think that, you know, like you're saying, it hasn't been done, people haven't been educated well. And I think, again, trying to take away judgment from it, but putting more of like, this is what it does for you and why it's important. Oh, that's even the worst part is that people get blamed for what's literally a gay, um, it's so outside of anybody's hands. You know yeah. what I mean? There's no, there's no way to blame people when the entire system is rigged mm-hmm. to make you, you know, uncomfortable in this yeah. way. I think it's totally rigged. I think it's totally messed up. 
Yeah, it's really hard. And I think there's so much judgment around food. And again, it's going back to temperament, things like that, or kids who have trauma or whatever it is. If you're thinking of good, bad food or what's going to make me lose weight or gain weight, whatever it is, like there's all these judgments around it versus it being fuel for your body and enjoyment. Why? There's just so much judgment around food. It's really, you know, and then we we pendulum swing from extreme to extreme, right? You go from, you know, this is so unhealthy for you and all the like crap that's in it, blah, 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 to, you know, okay, so you have to eat this super healthy. There is no this, there's no, there's nothing, there's nothing. And then they eat that and then their body craves some sugar, you know, like, because your body wants that. And so then you think, okay, I can't, I'm not supposed to have it, but then you crave it so much, you might binge on it, or you go to the other extreme and you just kind of keep swinging back and forth. And I think that that's such a issue. But I, but it really doesn't have to be that way because no, what, what I'm saying is there's such a, um, like an amazingly satisfying way of eating. That's mm-hmm. also, um, very high in nutrients. In fact, when we eat foods that are high in nutrients, that they also, and I'm talking about this includes cheese. If if you mm-hmm. want to be, if you don't want to be vegan, this includes um, natural meats. If you want to, you know, it doesn't. We don't have to exclude anything from this diet, yeah. but other than other than maybe uh, highly processed food from certain food companies, but the, but only the highly processed stuff. The other stuff, it's still just as good, like a fresh cut of meat versus a highly processed one. Now I don't eat meat, but. Um, <laughs> I think that there's such I think that there's such a way to really really enjoy everything that you want. Mm-hmm. Um, have I you said know. everything politically incorrect and we should rewind and have me not say half of the things I said? No, I think it's a good conversation to have, you know, and we can like agree or to we can agree or disagree on things too, you know. I'm also not an expert. I don't know anything about it. I just know that I'm projecting my own you know, I'm just projecting what I learned in order to make my life better healing from an eating disorder. But that also maybe the only reason I had the eating disorder, like I said, in the first place was because of competition. And so yeah. maybe it was all together and under a, a totally different kind of eating disorder. And obviously, I don't know what I'm talking about with any of this. But well, but the other thing is, I think these conversations are important. They're exactly what we're saying is like, people need to be able to talk about this or educate themselves or whatever it is, you know, and And I cut, so you come from your experience. I come from like the high acuity eating disorder world. So I'm going to probably have like a strong opinion in terms of like this, you know, again, I work in inpatient settings where it's extremely high acuity in a lot of ways and the behaviors make someone so medically unstable. So I come from a perspective of like where everything I'm saying really didn't work. And I really, it's just not the point in that situation. Totally. Right. And it it totally depends. I actually have a hard time sometimes talking about this with people because I have this perspective and it's not, that's not true. Like I grew up in a place where like, yeah, my mom had the same lunch every day. Probably she would eat frozen yogurt for lunch sometimes. And for some people, that could work. It doesn't mean you have an eating disorder and everybody's different. And so like I come from this really extreme. No, you have the two fittest. You had the two fittest parents ever. I mean, <laughs> but your mom always had a rockin' bod. Like the whole, I never knew her not to have that. Yeah. Um, and like, well, you know, she had probably issues with food too. And like, 
there's also a difference between someone with a strong eating disorder for where I like where I'm working and someone who has somewhat disordered eating and it's not getting in the way of their life necessarily. They're not being pulled from their life. They're not needing medical attention for, you know, like that's also the world we live in where like what you're doing or what you're talking about or what maybe my mom did or who knows can be sustainable for some people. I just am, again, from the perspective of an extreme. So I think I'm talking about not doing extremes. And at the same time, like my perspective is probably from an extreme perspective in a way too. Right. So to some extent, what I'm saying, there are a lot of people who maybe could benefit from hearing that there is a middle ground where yeah. there's like a certain healthy path that allows you to just never have to think about it anymore because you just actually look and feel good all the time and it becomes a non-issue, which is where I sort of brought well, my life to. Like my food for me is a non-issue because I am in such healthy patterns. But on the other hand, on the other side of the coin, it clearly those solutions don't just wouldn't work for just anybody. Um, yeah. And you, just, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I was going to say like some, not disclaimer, but like for those who struggle with eating disorders, what you're saying probably, you know, the hope is, is somebody could eat what they want and not have to think about it at some point, like for anybody in life, including those with eating disorders and people can be fully recovered and be at a place like you're talking about, not be thinking about it necessarily and be enjoy, like not think about their body as much, not think about what they're eating as much, or like, you know, just know what to do. And um, for somebody who's, who's, who is susceptible to an eating disorder, really only thinking about healthy and unhealthy and all this stuff could, you know, not be the best choice for them in that way. Right. Totally. Totally. Um, yeah. It's such an interesting fine line. I wonder yeah. if I'm saying anything too triggering because you know me, I'm, I have, um, my, I love, you know, <laughs> healthy lifestyle is, is something that I have passion for. Yeah. Yeah. That I would say I have passion for. Yeah. And I think that's so important. And like finding passion in your life is going like, you know, kind of full circle back that can really be helpful <laughs> with mental health and eating disorders and all the things I think. And again, it's like everybody has their own, I don't want to say their own issues, but like everybody can have their own life. And you know, someone that struggles with a strong eating disorder in the way that I've been treating them, I think it would be hard and to, you know, that they might not benefit and some people might. And I think some definitely a lot of people might benefit from that in life. Again, maybe not somebody that has like this strong eating disorder where they're in an inpatient facility and they're trying to be, you know, work towards recovery right now. Um, but I think there's Again, a huge difference between someone with that kind of eating disorder and someone who like who and that person who needs medical attention, their labs are totally off. They're fainting. They're unable to sustain life. They're not able to stay in school. They're not, you know, all of the things versus someone who's living their life happily. And this is just a part of their life. Totally. I'm wondering, I'm, there's even a part of me wondering if I should even release what I like this conversation because I, I don't want to have said anything so insensitive, but at the same time. I think there is some value in sharing what my experience has been and what has worked for me having come from a place where I legitimately did have an eating disorder. Yeah. Look, and, and how you're years upon years out of that, not to age you, you know, but like, uh, like, <laughs> this isn't like you, you know, you're not like right out of that. And this is what, you know, what you're No, doing. I would say that when I had my, um, actually it's really funny. It happened at a breakup. 
I had met this guy that was this raw vegan chef, but at the exact same, almost the exact same time that I met him, um, I had this terrible thing with a girlfriend. She read my emails to an ex, never spoke to me again. It was very Oof. traumatic. And this guy just happened to be a- around my life at that time. And he told me, he filled my fridge with all this raw organic food. And he said, if you eat only only high nutrient dense, unprocessed foods for the next 30 days, you're going to get more in touch with your soul. And so I, I stopped eating all artificial sweeteners. I stopped having anything processed. And I just was eating these whole foods. And it was probably 10 times more quote unquote fat in it than what I was eating before. You know, just Mm -hmm. if you look at, and there were more quote unquote calories Mm -hmm. for sure. I probably, you know, exponentially quadrupled, um, the amount of calorie and fat intake I was having, but because everything was so high nutrient dense, I was just feeling so good. And my life, and then it changed my whole body and it changed my whole life. And I never had to think about food anymore because I just started eating really high nutrient dense foods. And I think that's important to note what you're saying. It wasn't like calorie counting and restricting to try to lose weight or focusing on that. It was focusing on what makes you feel good and, and what makes you feel good and stay, uh, again, I go back to like this medically stable place because, you know, not, it's not focusing on the fact of what's like making you lose weight or whatever, like you're focused on what makes you feel good. You're focused on what makes you feel good and keeps you. And I say healthy, not in a way of like thin or whatever, but it keeps you healthy in your mind, keeps you healthy in your body, medically, all the things. And I think that's, what's the most important piece of it. Yeah. That was actually during a time when I just really was unhappy. I was brokenhearted and this guy just came in and taught me about really nutrient dense foods. And next thing I knew, <laughs> everything in my, my whole like relationship to food changed and my whole relationship to my body changed. And it was like, I felt more alive and never had to worry anymore. Cause at the time I did have to diet more and I had to watch myself more because, you know, I had to restrict my calories more because I wasn't, I wasn't ever really satisfied because things weren't nutrient dense. But once the food I was eating became really nutrient dense, I was more satisfied yeah. with my food And I didn't have to really restrict myself. I just ate anything I felt like. Right. And I think that's important. And to notice, like, it probably, in a sense, was a good distraction in a way of like, okay, I'm going to focus on this for a little bit, but in a way that wasn't like, I'm going to focus on this to be in control and lose weight. It was finding something that helped you actually move forward versus backward. And I think you're right. What happens is, is when you're not eating things that are balanced or giving you the nutrients that you need, your body will crave more. So then you feel fearful of binging or fearful of eating too much, or you do, and then you feel like you need to go back and restrict. And that's when you get the yo-yo dieting and stuff like that. Which is terrible. Yeah, it's horrible. And that's what then sets off the obsession. Yeah. And what's so cool about why everything changed for me when I learned this alternate strategy where I don't have to ever think about food. I just eat anything I want, but it's really high in nutrients. I always, you know, have in my day really high nutrient dense food so that there's never that feeling like I can never have enough. Right. There's that just doesn't exist for me anymore, which I because I learned this, which is great. 
Yeah. And I think like, again, back to like the idea where you're like, I think we need to rewind and I'm not going to post any of it. Like, I think that's so important for you to like, even just having this conversation to recognize, I mean, maybe you already recognize that, but to be able to re-recognize that or state it in that way versus I feel it's important to state it in those ways and eating what you want and things like that. And versus, um, healthy, unhealthy, bad, good, whatever it is like that. And then, right. Which is not, which don't, those words are meaningless when you're not explaining what you mean by that because other people, especially because if you're listening to mainstream, whatever, there was a time when they used to say fat was unhealthy, which isn't true. And so people don't even, they, we got this confusion around what healthy or unhealthy even means. So unless you explain it in terms of high nutrient dense foods, really focusing on, um, foods that, the more you eat, the more health, the more good stuff is in there, which includes chocolate because dark chocolate has all kinds of antioxidants in there. So not, like none of this is excluded. And I, and I like to think of position over preference in a way too. Like, yes, you might prefer to eat something, but if you're starving and you're going out to eat with someone, can you eat something else? And can you be okay? Or are you going to hold a position and say, I'm going to starve myself right now because this doesn't, this No, no, because one meal isn't going to kill you when you always have a health, when you always have a diet that's satisfying, one meal doesn't change anything. Whereas when you're always, when, when nothing is ever enough and you're always in that constant fight over, I, I want more because I'm not satisfied, but I can't have more because I don't want to gain weight. That's a terrible place to be. It's very uncomfortable. And um, so the idea is when once I learned how to be eating foods that really were satisfying all the time, then now it doesn't matter. And And I'm a New Yorker. I love my pizza. You know, every once in a while, I'll totally have pizzas. Um, like I said, you know, I can, there's, there's really never a time where I have to worry too much anymore. Yeah. I think that's great. And I think that's like, again, it's important to have these conversations and recognize, and also what you were saying before around like, you know, you eat all these things, but you don't feel satisfied, but you're scared to eat more because you don't want to gain weight. And that's like, you know, you're not in that way. Same with what I was saying before, listening to what your body needs because you're just feeding it, whatever. And that's, So I think, you know, like in a sense, we were saying the same thing in that way. Like, yeah, that was my life. I couldn't eat anything. I I was so, I mean, that was my life when I had an eating disorder was always feeling like I was never satisfied and Mm -hmm. I, but I was freaked out to have more because then I knew I would gain weight in ways that I didn't want to. And yet I couldn't, so I couldn't, I never felt satisfied. And because I wasn't satisfied, I was always thinking about food. Yeah. And I think if you can even, you know, go back to even the whole not point all this, but like back to what you're doing here and then this podcast and in what you're doing with all of this is sometimes it's also in uh, a symbol or it's uh, yeah, a symbol for what's going on in your life. So if we go back to people with eating disorders and the sexual identity or sexuality or gender identity piece, then not being satisfied or not, you know, fearful of having too much or too little or whatever it is. Um, there's also that piece where sometimes you can say, where else have you felt this way in your life? Doesn't have to be in sexuality or gender identity necessarily, but could be in your career. It could be in your family, whatever it is. Where else have you felt that way in your life? And that's another piece of this. Sometimes it's, it can be symbolic for something else in your life. Explain that more. Um, someone who is scared to be too much or need too much, um, will try to restrict in the way that they eat or what you're saying. I never felt satisfied. So as a therapist, I'd be like, 
so where else in your life have you never felt satisfied? Had you never felt satisfied at that time? You know, kind of thing. Oh, so interesting. Right. Because sexually at that point, there's no way, because that was all, I guess we're talking, yeah, that was before I came out. So yeah, there you go. Mm -hmm. Boom. (laughs) Things like that. That's how, that's where I would go sometimes too. It's like, where else, again, yeah, that question, like, where else have you felt this way? But then how does connect that even more though? Because I still think that that, I don't really think that was necessarily why, although maybe it was, maybe it was totally related. Yeah. I mean, it could, it, that's the thing is it doesn't have to be this conscious, like, I'm doing this or even, yeah, it doesn't have to be a conscious thing. It could be something subconsciously, but your body, when it's needing something or wanting to heal from something or repair from something, finds ways to try to get you to do it, whether that's through food or like some healing from in a relationship or trauma or whatever it is, your body will kind of find ways to keep you thinking about it, unfortunately, until you kind of feel more healed or repaired. I think there is something really messed up about the times before we realize that we're gay (laughs) and having to, for anyone who was in a position trying to make things work with guys, Mm -hmm. thinking that that was what you were supposed to do, of course, Mm -hmm. and not knowing that I mean, at the time, I didn't know there was anything different about me, so I was just trying my best. Right. And it is really intense when you think about what you're putting your body through Mm -hmm. in that situation. Yeah. I mean, it's – yeah. That it's it can it's really hard when you think about those times in your life or – I used to get ulcers. My last year before coming out, I had full ulcers. My stomach was so bad. I remember the dates that I would go on with these guys, and they were amazing guys. One guy after another, such, you know, they -hmm. were kind, they were handsome, they were cool to me, they were really successful. These were good people. But every time that time in the night would come when I knew they would try and make out with me or something, I would get this horrible stomachache. And I remember making when they would kiss me because I don't like making out with guys. I would think, how long do I have to sit here and do this? And um, when you just when you think about really putting yourself through that time and time again, that is a lot in the body. I can totally see now why. Yeah, and and I think for that, I correct me if I'm wrong. You weren't like consciously putting yourself in that position, knowing what you know now about yourself and attraction and all of this. And like consciously saying, I'm just going to keep doing this necessarily. It was a lot of it might've been subconscious. And again, these stomach pains (laughs) might've been signs. They were totally signs. I had no idea though. I honestly was trying my best. I just thought, you know, I was looking for love. I really wanted to find love. So I was trying to date guys because I thought that's where love was supposed to come from. Right. So again, it's not this conscious thing that you're doing to try to suppress it necessarily. Same with eating disorders and that this sense, same with a lot of different things. It's just, you know, again, your body's going to try to find ways to tell you I'm not satisfied. <laughs> totally. It's crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm so, I'm so proud of you. You know, so many things. Is there anything else that I should have asked you about? I don't think so. I'm trying to think. What else? You had a lot of signs growing up when we were little <laughs> that we could have picked up on. When did you first realize that you were a lesbian? Um, I, between the summer between eighth and ninth grade, I started to started thinking about it and like having more of a like a hard time 
not figuring it out, but I definitely uh, emotionally that summer at camp was really tough for me. I felt so alone in this and like unsure and needed to talk about it and didn't talk to and had nobody to talk to. What made you think that, how did you, how did you even start to have those thoughts? So like what, what brought, how did you even know what was going on? A friend of mine had told me about her attraction to another girl. Like she's older. She went to my school. Um, and was talking to me before the summer about being attracted to someone and then also about the movie, but I'm a cheerleader. And so I watched that and that was the start. Um, So this older girl was like, (laughs) I'm attracted to a chick and there's this movie you should check out. So yeah. And then we watched it and I was like, Oh, you watched it with her. I think I'm pretty sure. Um, And then that was like right before I left for camp. And so then that whole summer I was a little bit frazzled by it. Um, like pretty accepting, not like, oh my God, no, it was more just like, wait, what does this mean? Kind of questions. But this was also after, um, you know, this was eight between eighth and ninth grade, but there were definitely signs before that. Um, all right. So so eighth and ninth grade is really young. mm -hmm. It's really young. And then I like ninth grade came about and had like before school even started, we had this retreat and it was an overnight retreat. And then there was a girl who was in the same bunk that I was in and we like stayed up all night talking and we became best friends. There was definitely like attraction and it just like, how did you know at that age it was attraction and how did you know she felt? Cause I had people, then I had people to talk to. I was really lucky. Like that, like my friend who had talked to me about her like attraction to the other girl. And so then we're all in high school together at that point, And we could all like, I mean, it got incestuous and ridiculous, but, <laughs> but I had people to talk to. So wait, so what do you mean by incestuous? Like you started dating each other? Yeah. I mean, by the end of high school, we had the, like a, you know, like octagon, nonagon kind of thing of like, who dated, who hooked up with who. It was, you know, crazy. But you're so lucky you at least had that community. That's kind of amazing for high school. I was really lucky. I mean, I was not open at home. I was so um, not ready. And there were so many times where my family asked me about it even, but I wasn't ready. So I would lie or push them away or whatever. Didn't you say something like ordering takeout food or something, right? Yeah, exactly. Actually. Um, Funny story. So this was like my, actually, this was 11th grade. It was 11th grade. Um, we were doing, they were doing the Laramie project as a play, which was really cool because it was a conservative Christian private school. I don't know what Um, the Laramie project is. Oh, it's about, um, Matthew Shepard and his, basically his murder, um, in Wyoming. And they, um, it's like a whole thing about basically, the the night he died and people being interviewed and talking about it in the small town, the Laramie, Wyoming. So we were doing the Laramie project. And so then we had like a debriefing after, and it was all of high school. And I got up and on the microphone in front of a lot of people and was just like, you know, I really think it's great. However, the school won't even let people start a gay straight alliance. And I think that's ridiculous. So, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said something to that effect were your parents there? Or? No, they weren't. So there's this like parent underground network kind of thing. I don't know how they even found out. But anyway, so that was like on a Thursday or Friday. Saturday, I had basketball practice and I'm driving home and um, my sister calls me and <laughs> I'm in the driveway and I, she's talking to me. She's like, I just want you to, I want to give you a heads up. Mom and dad got this intel that you said something about a gay straight alliance and they're going to ask if you're gay. 
And I was like, what the hell? Like, what? <laughs> and I remember when this happened for sure. I also, like, my sister didn't know it. I mean, again, they all knew, but they didn't know. No, we didn't. Your sister didn't know. We didn't know until way later. Yeah, like I wasn't out, but I was like, are you kidding me? No. Oh, gosh, I can't believe this. So I'm sitting in the um, driveway talking to my sister on the cell phone, on my cell phone, being like, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? And while I'm doing this, my dad is being so weird. He's in, he comes out of the house at the front door and goes back in. He opens the garage, throws out trash, closes, it goes back in, comes back out, goes to the side of the house, goes back in. And I'm like, what is going on? This is super weird. And then he comes out and he's on the phone and he rolls down. I roll down my window. My sister's on, on my phone. He's on the phone with my mom. And he's like, Mom's going to get lunch, whatever place we're going to. What do you want for lunch? And I was like, how about the I'm not a lesbian salad? And like, <laughs> right, he just like looked goes. at me and literally just looked at me and walked back inside. <laughs> <sighs> oh, but it turns out you are. Yeah, exactly. God, that was. Ugh. Your sister's the first person in the world I came out to. I I knew that. That's I remember that story. Like the minute I realized I was a lesbian, I called her. That's who you called. That's just I pick up the phone. I'm like Steph. <laughs> I'm a lesbian. <laughs> what do I do? And she's like, Wait, what? I was like, Do you know any lesbians? I'm a lesbian. And she says, You know what? That actually makes a lot of sense. Wait, hold on one second. And she puts down the phone and then go reach for her New York nightlife guide to read out some lists of lesbian magazines. That's so sweet. But I feel like we didn't get to the good part about this person that you became best friends with. How did you first kiss? Can we tell that? That's an exciting part. So you're having attraction. You were saying that you're lucky because you had friends you could talk to, but you didn't say how this all happened. Yeah. Um, it. Let's think. Uh, so yeah, that happened. And then, you know, we were best friends. We talk all the time and we got super close super quickly and there are two things that stand out to me. One, we played sports together. So we were on the same basketball team and we would go and just screw, not in the hookup sense, but we'd go into the bathroom or something before games and we would just go crazy, get paper towels wet and throw them at each other and just be like super weird or all the things. And I'm pretty sure we kissed at one point there. Um, but the one that I remember. But how? Was, did you do it or did she? I don't, I don't know. At a friend's sleepover was... Another. Oh, right, because you had friends egging you on. That's cool. No, that wasn't even had friends egging us on. That was, we were at a friend sleepover where nobody knew. It was friends our year, not these uh, this other group of friends. And we were sleeping next to each other like, at the sleepover. Right, but you already knew about this stuff because you had already seen the movies and stuff. I didn't yes. know about that stuff in high school. I just didn't really know. I had friends who definitely... Hooked you up. Definitely. They hooked you up with the knowledge. You didn't hook me up with any knowledge back then, and you're way younger, and that's sorry. Profoundly, un profoundly unfair. I'm so sorry. Little one. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. All is forgiven. I love you. You're the best. This is great. What else? Is there anything else we left out? I don't know. All right. Um, where can people go and find you on social media? Oh, I'm private because I'm a psychologist. Oh. So I can't get so my so my uh. My patients don't, don't find me. Okay. Um, well, that's fair. So then is there anything that you want people to do, any action they can take? Any? I would say if you're suffering from an eating disorder, you're questioning that, or you're suffering from mental illness or whatever it is that's going on for you to seek out support, whether that be a therapist or a facility or whatever you need. But I just, there's people out there that can be helpful and reach out to me if 
um, someone needs some help in finding resources, it, my email is drsherhokornfeld at gmail.com, but I'll spell that out because it's long. Um, D-R-C-H-E-R-Y-L-K-O-R-N-F-E-L-D at gmail.com. And I'll make sure I have that on the blog for anyone who missed the spelling or wants just a quick cut and paste of it. I'll have that there below. Please do that. I'm happy to be a resource for anybody. And unfortunately, I'm private on all the social media things because of where I work um, and what I do. But I'm happy to be of support. uh, And I would love to be a resource or help people find what they need. Awesome. I love you, Cheryl. Thank you for coming on my podcast. Yeah, I'm so happy to do it. You're the best. And now I would love to hear from you. We talked about a lot of things in this episode, but I'm curious, what of the many things we covered was the most impactful for you? Head on over to the blog at womenwantingwomen.com and let us know. And if you're interested in finally finding the woman of your dreams, so you could be best friends who learn and grow together and share your dreams together and have adventures together and have passionate intimacy together, then there are free resources that can help you on womenwantingwomen.com, including a guide to quickly and easily eliminating rejection from your life, a quiz to find out what qualities the woman of your dreams will find most attractive about you when you meet her, a quick guide to the three biggest mistakes most women make when coming out and how to avoid them, a guidebook for finding your lesbian soulmate, and a free matchmaking survey you can fill out in case I already know the woman of your dreams. All of that is free on my website at womenwantingwomen.com. And when you claim your free access to any of those things, you automatically become a Jordana Michelle Insider which will give you instant access to an email training series I created to help you get on your game to finding your soulmate faster and easier and to help you grow the deepest possible love together once you finally do meet. Plus, you'll get exclusive content and special giveaways and some personal updates from me that I just don't share anywhere else. So go to womenwantingwomen.com and check it out for yourself and share it with any other LGBT women that you think can benefit from what I'm offering there. And until next time, keep remembering that hot lesbians are everywhere, that love is real, and that the woman of your dreams is on her way into your life in perfect timing. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on Women Wanting Women.